Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening to this episode, and thanks too for the great response um, on the Cheers episode from last week. Uh, it was so nice to hear how much that meant to so many of you, because it sure meant a lot to me. Um, in celebration of that episode, because I, I had so much fun recording it and revisiting Cheers, um, I wrote on the newsletter a um, breakdown of the Cheers pilot and why it is so frequently called a perfect pilot and the best pilot ever written. Uh, and maybe it is. I, I think it may be. Uh, go over to benblacker.substack.com and check that out, please. Um, I think especially if you are working on a pilot of your own or have plans to, uh, you'll find the whole thing pretty instructive. I know I did. Uh, breaking it down really gave me some clarity on some stuff that I was working on. So that's, once again, benblacker.substack.com. And while you're there, if you want to support me and the newsletter and this podcast, please become a paid subscriber. If you do that, uh, you get access to the monthly Q&As that we hold with professional writers. You show up, you ask the questions, uh, they give the answers. Every one of these has been incredibly fun and instructive and insightful and really inspiring. Uh, I look forward to them every month, and, and we're for sure going to do some more. Um, you also get access to recordings of all the past Q&As that we've done. So those are really worthwhile, I think. You know, they're much more craft-focused and um, have a lot more practical advice as far as the industry and, and the craft of writing than the podcast sometimes does, uh, which tends to be a much looser conversation. Anyway, go to benblacker.substack.com and check that out. Become a paid subscriber. I appreciate it. It is the best way to support this podcast. We've got a great episode today. Uh, I visit with my friend Mallory O'Meara, who was last on the show a few years ago, 2019? Uh, to talk about her book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon. Mallory's got a new book out called Girls Make Movies, which is a terrific middle grade book about how movies are made. Uh, and we'll talk about that and why she wrote the book and, and what writing the book was like for her. Um, I do recommend you check it out and, and gift it to any young movie lover in your life. Uh, I, I say this in the episode, but... It's the kind of book that I wish I had had as, you know, an 11-year-old kid who loved movies. Before that, uh, let's do some strike talk. A bit of a lighter one today, although I, there was some surprising stuff in here that really I wound up finding very moving. Uh, I chat with Z Chun. Z, you may know, is the showrunner of the Gremlin series, Gremlin's Secrets of the Mogwai, which is out right now. Uh, he's worked on... Gotham and Once Upon a Time and Little America. Uh, he's also the executive producer and co-show owner of Boots Riley's uh, upcoming Amazon series, I'm a Virgo, which uh, also sounds terrific. We will talk with Z sometime in depth about uh, all of these shows and all of his experiences. He's such a great guy, such a smart guy uh, about the industry and about writing. Um, but I think smartly, folks are not doing promotions right now. Uh, I think, you know, we really want to make the AMPTP feel the pain of not having writers work for them. And part of us work, working for them is doing promotions. So 
I'm not having anyone who works in television or film do promotions. Uh, instead, we are having these other conversations, um, some about the strike, some not about the strike. You'll, you'll hear all about this in the coming uh, episodes. So for now, I chat with Z, uh, who is widely regarded to be the best-dressed guy in television, <laughs> the best-dressed showrunner in television. Um, about his sartorial choices and uh, what to wear on the picket line. I think you will really be surprised and delighted by this conversation, as I was. So here's Zichun. Union song, union battle, all added up. What is all what we got now? Union song, union battle, all added up. Z, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for chatting. Thank you for having me. Um, let's talk first about um, what has your picketing routine been? Well, I've been picketing either. I'm trying to do one early morning uh, every week uh, just because it kind of messes up the whole day afterwards when you wake up at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And... Then, you know, back in 07, I think we all kind of uh, picketed where we worked. But what's really been nice is we've been I've been able to just text friends and, you know, those shifts are four hours long. And so, you know, just to be able to be uh, with some people that I know and to reconnect with them. And you know, we live such kind of solitary experiences. Uh, even when you're in a room, you're kind of with the same folks over and over again. And uh, it's been nice to see people definitely out in the line. Yeah, it's been, I'll say, like, you've been you've been front and center on a lot of, well, at least on my Instagram. <laughs> it was nice to see you, like, with your Gremlins writers reunited and uh, saw you with Boots Riley. Like, how are you contending with, you have shows out now. Yeah. And I think it's a weird time. Like, you don't want to be promoting because that feels helpful to the studio. Yeah. So, so what are you doing with this? And like, what's, how's your mental health around this? You know, I think I kind of knew what this is. I, I kind of knew that this was going to happen. The last time we got very close, I felt that there was so much in production and so much at stake for the studios that I felt like they couldn't really um, stop production. But also this is my second strike. And so um, I'm trying to look at the positive sides of it. Um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting, you know, when in, in 07, I had like just gotten my WGA card. Uh, I had moved out here to LA from New York with a writing partner and um, I was sleeping on my friend's couch and then got like upgraded to my friend's roommate's bed, but in a sleeping bag. Cause I like, didn't want to wash, wash the sheets. And Mike Weiss, my writing partner was sleeping in his, um, girlfriend mother's day bed in her office because uh, they we were all you know in Brooklyn together and uh, moved out here and it was it's been I, I will say it feels like a lot of it feels the same in terms of the energy but also the WGA makeup um, is different like visually from the from the second I walked up to the Netflix line on day one and certainly when I went to the shrine for that big meeting you know, in 07, um, you know, that's 16 years ago. And, you know, I, I walked the line for months. I don't think I met another Asian writer the entire time. 
And it was, I also felt like the numbers of, especially like younger women writers was lower. And so it just, it feels really different, even though we're kind of fighting the same battle. And it's been interesting having this history of, you know, having experienced these strikes. I mean, I talked to some guy on the line who said this was his fourth strike, which I would prefer to be retired by the time <laughs> there's a fourth strike. But that's just a, that's a, that's a very long and long-winded answer to, I'm just trying to look at the the bright side and kind of take it all in right now. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say again, it's, it's been great seeing you out there. Um, I think the reason I suggested we talk is you are widely acknowledged to be the uh, best dressed on the picket line. <laughs> <laughs> it's let's, let's start with this. What kind of shoes are you wearing out there? Have you been comfortable? They look great. Yeah. You know, I wear um, Converse all stars. Uh, they are, custom from the Converse website. And um, yeah, I've got like insoles in them. So they feel like they want, I mean, console, I mean, uh, Converse all-stars without um, insoles. You may as well just throw your feet into a shredding machine. It's a bold um, choice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're walking for four hours. We're certainly getting exercise that we normally wouldn't be getting, which is kind of nice. And how are you dressing for the weather and for like, I found myself having to shower when I come in, <laughs> like if I'm doing a late shift, especially <laughs> I'm like, I need to not talk to anyone. I need to jump in the shower. I mean, the 4 a.m. day where um, I think I was at Paramount by 5 a.m. and there was torrential downpour. That was a tough day. Um, but luckily I'd been shooting in New Orleans. So I had waiters and like a real rain jacket, not like a rain jacket for LA one where you're like, Oh, there's going, there's going to be three feet of water. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of the way I dressed came out of going to the writer's room every day. And um, you know, there's like a sameness every day you go to the writer's room and it was kind of like, okay, well, I feel like it's, it would be nice to kind of express myself in different ways. I also feel like, um, you know, I mean, honestly, it was just a, a little mental thing that I was doing because you know, when you work in network, network TV, those rooms are long. Every day you go to the same office. And I was just like, you know, I'm just going to dress a little weirder and a little more Asian every day. And then, you know, six years later, here we are. So that's that's the origin of why I dress the way I do. But that's really interesting because like having having been on just one network show, like it is there. And, and this was in 2009, I guess, 2010. Like there is something to an almost corporate feeling in those offices where you dress kind of not to be noticed. I also feel I mean, I'm looking at the the writers on the line and there's like some real style. It's it's it is part of me was also, you know, we I think for such a long time there was a feeling of what a writer looked like. And that's not just like in terms of, you know, race and sex, but also the way that they dressed. And I think that like, whether it was conscious or not feeling like I wanted to destabilize some of that. And that's also the reason why, like, I, I mean, whenever I do anything formal, you know, there's like a default normal of like Western dress that is like, if someone says black tie, that's what it is. And trying to like, why can't you know Asian culture and other cultures kind of get incorporated as a kind of default normal for the way people dress? You know whether it's something formal or something every day. So you you've 
come out of in the past year two writers room at least that i know of i guess it was three yeah it was three yeah yeah incredible uh what is the vibe in a room that you are running the vibe in a room that i'm running i mean the way that i usually sum it up is i really do believe having been on network tv where we were doing like 22 23 episodes a year um i believe that the most valuable resource in the writer's room is stamina and just feeling confident that you're doing your best work. And as long as people are doing that, I think everything is kind of moving in the right direction. And because of that, I'm very conscious about making sure that people have the mental space and mental health, um, that anything personal that they have to deal with, they are able to do that whenever they want to, no questions asked. Um, but a lot of that came out of rooms where I felt like we were just so in survival mode for so long and people were kind of putting off a lot of things, I think, um, or bottling things up that um, you it ends up expressing itself in the work. And I think that sometimes, even though it's counterintuitive, um, more leniency in terms of schedule, shorter hours, really checking in with the writers and, and getting to know them and making sure that they are getting what they need um, that to me is the most, most important thing. And I hope that that kind of translates to the, uh, to the, to the people who work on the shows I work on. Yeah. And I'll say having, you know, being friends with a bunch of your gremlins writers, they, they loved that room. They loved working with you uh, and they felt like, and they felt like that's exactly what they got. It was, I mean, it was such a fun room. I mean, I, I feel very lucky in that, you know, in the past few years, I've really gotten to work with like incredible writers and, also just like great people you know there's a reason why after this room ended like we're all in a text chain like well let, let's let's go let's go and pick it together at least we can be together in person again that's great to hear um we'll do this uh we'll do a longer version of this at some point when this is all over uh but thanks for chatting today and we'll see you out on the line thanks ben union song union battle all added up one is all what we got now Union song, union battle All added up One is all what we got now I can't even start to look around me here uh, Again, thanks to Z for that terrific conversation. There was really some um, enlightening stuff in there. And we'll have him back for a longer conversation sometime for sure once this strike is all over and we're back to promoting um but for now please enjoy this conversation with my friend mallory omira uh, mallory is a terrific writer a terrific person uh if you don't know the podcast that she does with bria grant called reading glasses check out that podcast it's all about books mallory of course is as i said the author of the lady from the black lagoon uh as well as the new book girls make movies which is available today and which I highly recommend. Thanks so much to Mallory for being on the show. She mentions in this conversation a playlist that she made for this book and, and for all the books. She makes a different playlist. Uh, but the playlist for this book, for Girls Make Movies, uh, she sent me a link. You can find that over on the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com. Uh, it's a great playlist. It's I've been listening to it for the past couple weeks since she sent it to me. Check that out and pick up Mallory's book, Girls Make Movies. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Mallory O'Meara is here. Uh, Mallory, 
has a great new book out called Girls Make Movies. Uh, but Mallory, you were last here for The Lady from the Black Lagoon, which was 2019. Is that right? Oh my God, four years ago. Wow. That's ridiculously recently to have written three books because we missed you for your second book, Girly Drinks. Because we were deep in the pandemic and everyone was dying. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the time to be talking about drinking cocktails. <laughs> It was definitely the time to be drinking. Yeah, it was a very interesting book launch because people were drinking more than ever before, but also feeling less celebratory about it. So <laughs> it was a very interesting time to release a book on cocktails. Absolutely. Well, let's just to recap, uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon, uh, I absolutely loved and we've talked about it. People should go listen to that episode because we have a lot of fun talking about Millicent Patrick, who was Disney's first female animator and designed the Creature from the Black Lagoon costume. Since then, wild acclaim for this book. Everybody loves it. Let's, let's talk about girly drinks for a second before we get into uh, the new book, Girls Make Movies, was like when Lady from the Black Lagoon came out, did you already know what was happening next? Were you already working on girly drinks? Yeah, actually, I started the uh no pun intended, but girly drinks were sort of fermenting in my brain while I was working on Lady from the Black Lagoon. Um, I was in the process of researching the first book uh, when I got really into cocktails. I'd moved to Los Angeles. My best friend got me a cocktail home kit as a uh, housewarming present. So like a shaker, bar spoon, all that stuff. And I got really into it, which is very funny because I don't cook. Like I will spend four hours making a very fancy simple syrup, but then open up a can of tuna for dinner. It's very strange. Uh, and then I, I, but as soon as I get into anything, I want to read about it. And I got into cocktails and I was reading all these books and I noticed that there was no women's history in there. And I said, that can't be right. Women love to drink. <laughs> that seems weird. And I was complaining about it, uh, texting my best friend, which I do about everything. And she said, well, I know what your next book is going to be. And I kind of laughed and she said, that book doesn't exist. And you would be, you're already writing a woman's history. Like it's not a big jump. So uh, girly drinks started uh, kicking around in the back of my brain. And uh, when I was talking to my beloved editor over at Hanover Square Press, uh, Peter Joseph, about what I wanted to after Lady from the Black Lagoon, um, after I had passed in the first draft and but before every writer knows that like weird in, in limbo period when you're finished with it, but it's not out yet. And it's just sort of like floating in the ether. And we had um, coffee and we're talking about what I wanted to do. And I kind of mentioned that I would love to write a women's history of drinking. And turns out he used to be a cocktail writer. So he was like, absolutely, let's do that. And then um, I pitched it, we sold it. I was really excited about it. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be the best book ever to research. I'm gonna travel everywhere. I'm gonna go to all these distilleries and breweries and bars. And then I started writing it in earnest February of 2020. <laughs> oh no. And on one hand, it was terrible, but on the other hand, it was great because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> so I was like, might as well write a world history of a subject. So uh yeah, it was a very and then it came out in 2021, which um was also just we, you know, there was that weird period where we had all gotten vaccinated. It was like before the first big variant wave hit. And we'd all gotten vaccinated. We're like, wow, maybe things are better now. And we start, we booked a whole book tour. And then I forget if it was Delta or Omicron first, <laughs> but one of the big variants hit and then we canceled the whole book tour. Um, but I mean, I'm still really proud of it. It's still selling well, like it's found its audience. I won a James Beard award for it. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Congrats. 
which is really funny because I, I was so convinced that I was not going to win that I did not go to the ceremony. <laughs> and uh, yeah, turns out if you get nominated for something, folks, you should really go if you can, if you get the chance. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still very proud of it. But that's I think it's a huge part of being a writer is um, having that fluidity with your expectations. And every book is different, every, you know, and things change so quickly. That's something that um, every writer, whether you are a screenwriter, a novelist, a comic writer, the industry changes so quickly um, from stuff within it um, or stuff without it or outside of it, like pandemic, the pandemic, um, that every, you can never expect that one release is going to be like another you know, the way things are um, marketed and publicized changes so quickly with different social media platforms. So something that was really hard for me between book one and book two was that I had all these measurements of success, you know, and just within that, even before the pandemic started, but even in just like that first year between um, when uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon was released in the in, uh, right before the pandemic started, when I started working on girly drinks, things changed so quickly. TikTok became a thing that was not even part of the conversation when my first book came out. So uh, I had all these sort of benchmarks for what I thought made a successful book. And when girly drinks wasn't hitting them, I started to panic. And then I realized that those benchmarks either don't exist anymore or just are so changed that you can't compare one to another. So uh, it really, I, 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 you know, I only have two books out, but I think every book that you release or every project that you release, you get more and more grizzled to the point where, I mean, Ben, you just must be like chain smoking in an alleyway. Like, you're like nothing scares me. Like you've seen so much and like things have changed so much that it's like, on one hand, it's hard to get as excited, but on the other hand, it's hard to get as hurt because you just get so used to the change and, um, uh, you know, just not, not pinning all, all, all your hopes on one thing. Yeah, I think you, you're absolutely right. Like this is such a part of an author's or writer's life now is how these things live in the world. And if you can recognize the fluidity of it, it's, it does a lot for your mental health, right? It really does. It really, because being a writer is a rough job on your brain. You know, there's so much, a friend of mine, Delilah Dawson was tweeting about it recently about how when you're a writer, one of the things that's so hard is that there's so many things that are outside of your control. All you can control is the work and almost everything else, the way that it is publicized, the way that it is marketed, the genre it is sometimes is completely out of your control. The book cover that you get, you know, whatever, the so, and, and there's so many other different things in film too, uh, that, trying panicking because those things are not going the way that you want or not going the way that you think that they should is a losing game. <laughs> you just, all you can, can do is be proud of the work that you do and control that and do, do your best and real and really just focus on, on the next thing and, and enjoying yourself. I know that I, I say that all the time. And when I, my first book came out, I had so many friends of mine that would like try to enjoy it. And I was like, are you fucking insane? Like, I can't do that, but you have to try because it's all the moments of happiness. Like you have no idea when something great is going to happen next. So just try to be happy about that. Something that you made up in your brain is making other people happy and it's doing well. And, you know, it's, uh, you have to get as, as zen about it as you possibly can. I, I think you're absolutely right. So let me, let's dig into that for a second before we talk about the new book. Um, like, what does that look like for your process? How do you get into 
a space where whether it's during the research phase or the writing phase, and I imagine there's a lot of overlap in those anyway, how do you get yourself into the headspace? What does your day-to-day process look like? I, I try to, at least the past few years, push everything out. I try to stay offline because it's very, I, I find it's very hard, at least for me, uh, to stay focused on what you're doing when you're seeing uh, other people's things come out and, you know, things happening for everybody else. Writing is such a long game. Uh, my friend Cameron Hurley, she always says, you know, it is a marathon. It is not a race. So just kind of pushing out the internet, and which is distracting in a million ways anyways, um, and really focusing on um, on what I'm doing. I really like marinating in things. So I'll like make, make a playlist for each particular project and like only listen to that when I'm working. Um, I like to make my office space like a really nice, like it's so funny so many writers you know like oh you can tell you're on deadline because you're cleaning and trying to make things look nice and that can definitely be used for procrastination but for me like I really love the um I don't want to say the aesthetic of writing because that makes it sound like I'm like wearing a beret in a coffee shop but like I'm a big fountain pen user and I love my inks and I love nice paper and it is real like I can sometimes trick myself into getting excited about writing you know because I'm like okay writing is stressful but ooh, look how nice your desk looks and there's a little candle lit and there's like a new pen to use and I'm like all right I'm interested now and like that really helps me get in like I have all my notebooks and as a nonfiction writer I have so much research so I have stacks of stuff everywhere and it like I like being amongst that stuff uh, and that can really help me get in the space of like ooh, okay time to write time to be creative and uh, I, I think it really helps Absolutely. There's something to the, the ritual of it, right? That if you can do that every day. Yes. That's my favorite word actually for it. Mm -hmm. And getting excited about it, whether it's, you know, making, having a nice little coffee or just like, you know, whatever sensory things you need. I have a friend, um, writer, Sarah Gailey, they, have a particular candle scent for each project so when they're it's like a like a pavlovian way to get you into that space where they'll as soon as they start smelling that candle their brain's like oh time to write like however you can trick or bribe your little monkey brain into getting excited about writing you go for that you know for me it's fountain pens and nice ink for you it might be a candle or a treat um you know whatever works that same friend, actually, they do this thing where <laughs> for every 100 words they write, they give themselves a jelly bean. So it's literally like they're like they are training their little monkey brain. And, you know, it sounds silly, but truly whatever works. <laughs> Pavlovian response, right? That action. And then you get it. You get something for it to stimulate your brain. That's so funny. <laughs> That's all writers are. People make us seem like we're really fancy, intellectual, highfalutin creatures, but all we want is just a little treat. <laughs> oh my God. Sure. We, we trained our dogs the same way. <laughs> I did. I had a really fun time putting together just like a bunch of like Riot Girl or pop uh, or just like fun, like hardcore girly-ish mu or music. It was really, really fun because I don't listen to a lot of pop music, um, but I was just like, I just want like the the soundscape of the Pussycats movie to be in my brain while I'm creating this. Something that's like really fun and really bright. And uh, yeah, that's what I listened to while I was writing it. <laughs> it. Clearly you had a tone in mind for what you wanted this book to feel like. 
Uh, do you want to just let, give the, the quick pitch for the book and then we'll talk about how it came to be? So Girls Make Movies is uh, a book about, is nonfiction book about filmmaking aimed at young girls. I actually think it might be the first one ever. Uh, there are, I think there's a few now books that are made for filmmaking for kids, but this is really the first one that is aimed at young girls. Um, and it's also, I believe, the world's first choose your own adventure style nonfiction book, uh, which is very fun. Yeah, I'm real. It, I, it actually works in the, it, it would not work in almost any other context besides the making of a movie. So the book uh, takes you from uh, idea all the way to the red carpet on how to make a movie, plus all of the types of people who work on a movie, all the film crew, especially people that you might like. When I was a kid, I was like, what is a best boy? What is a grip? And it t t tells you all of that stuff and you get to meet everyone. You get to see cool illustrations of a really diverse group of women doing those jobs. And you find out what they love about their jobs, how they got their jobs. And then the way that you move through the book is you make choices about your movie. Do you, you're making a fictional zombie movie and you have to decide like, okay, do you want those zombies to be practical? You got to flip to this page. Well, if you want them to be CGI, you got to flip to this page and you meet different people based on your choices. And there are consequences to those choices. So you have to be careful and, and be logical. And you, if you go too wild, you might have to start all over and go all the way back to the beginning. So it's really fun. And I worked really hard to make it as um exciting and welcoming as I possibly could you know we all know the world of film can be really snooty and you know there's a, there's not a lot of stuff that is um, especially for young girls that is meant to be welcoming to kids this is like magical veil you know behind of with movies and it's like oh well no one we don't no one knows what this how this thing works and no or how much that person makes you know and that's that's sort of intentional in some places and I want to pull that veil back and be like well this is everyone come in like I want every young girl in the world to feel like they are capable if they want to, to tell their stories on the big screen or the little screen, if you are into TV. <laughs> it's it's um, such a, a, like you say, it is such a welcoming book. It is such a warm book. Thank you. Um, like <laughs> it, it tells this practical information in such an accessible way. Um, how did this even start to take shape? I mean, obviously you you are a movie person. <laughs> You've worked in this industry. Um, but like to to specifically set out to write something for young girls that is welcoming to the how to make movies, like that's an endeavor. That's a choice you have to make. It sure was. And I was really nervous about it because I uh, you've read my my other books, you know that my writing style, um, is very adult not in the way that I write about like boobs but in the way that like I swear a lot um I I I I connect a lot of the things that I write about to modern problems so you know I don't shy away from talking about like the uh social uh uh, ramifications of a lot of stuff. So it was very difficult for me to uh, to sort of shift that out of my brain and, and write for kids. But I mean, this book actually started uh, for adults. It was going to be women make movies and it was going to be more of a coffee table style book. And then um, I started to move away from that because it just wasn't exciting to me. It doesn't wasn't working. And, you know, I, I realized that what better way to get more people, get more women in the film industry than starting to when they're young, you know, cause there's just like, I started doing research. There's just not a lot out there um, for, for there isn't any books that's like, hey, hey, young lady, let's get you in this director's chair. There's just nothing. And I started to think about how fun it would be to, to teach girls and to show young girls. Cause I started out 
uh, you know, I was a film nerd from a very, very young age. And I grew up in the age before IMDb, or at least before I didn't have access to it until I was a teenager. So, I mean, I have very vivid memories of watching movies, you know, six inches away from our dusty TV screen and watching the end crawl and trying to figure out like what, okay, this, 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 and this person is involved, but what do they do? And I went to the library and all the film books are massive, boring tomes that are not in bright colors, clearly not for kids. And I just felt very shut out. So I really wanted to tap into that. And like, if someone had given me this book when I was that age, I can almost guarantee you that I would have gotten into film maybe a decade earlier than I did. Um, and it really, it would have changed my life. And so I started just getting really excited about thinking about making it for kids and making it for young readers. And I was like, I can probably go at least one book without swearing. And uh, girls, here, here, here I am. <laughs> Now, listen, I haven't read it cover to cover. I don't know if there are swears in some of the chapters I skipped. Okay. There are no swears. But there is a lot of women's history, which I, I, you can't kick the historian out of the girl. I wanted to, throughout the whole book, there's all these little sidebars of like, hey, like in, in, in almost every chapter, there's like, here's the first woman to do this or like the first woman to win an Oscar for this. And did you know that like, you know, there's like cool little moments because I think it's really important to show young girls that it's not just like, this isn't like a new cool thing that's happening. I know that we're living in this very heavy quotation marks post Me Too world um, where there, there's a big push to get more women to do things and that's great but like I want young girls to realize that they're not this isn't like a new thing this is girls have been making movies like women invented narrative film women invented science fiction you know women were making movies when as soon as movies started being made it's not uh it's not a new thing it's not a weird thing um and there's just so much cool history you know the first openly transgender woman to win an oscar for something was in the 70s like that's wild that's so cool so i really wanted to bring that bring that into the uh, book in a fun and very accessible way yeah so so let's talk about that accessibility and like how you even put a book like this together because like you say there is a version of this book that we encountered when we were kids that is like very dry um I guess it's my question is like how do you balance voice and facts and history how do you get all that stuff together to be this really very lively book that you came up with it was hard <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of lot of jobs on a film set that are complicated. You know, there uh, a producer is a perfect example. I remember when I first started in film, I was like, "What is a producer?" And you know, on, on one hand, it's a there. But the answer to what a producer is and what a producer does is a very long convoluted answer. But uh, there is a way to explain it really simply. And what the, the way that I uh, tried to break everything down was make it fit in one sentence, if it could be short. And luckily, it's actually easier nowadays because of like, every almost every kid has has access or at least knows about TikTok and videos and movies and streaming. I feel like kids today, God, I'm so I feel really old. <laughs> Have, just have so much more access to watching things than we did when we were kids. So it was a little bit easier um, because like sometimes I would make a reference to something and I would be like, mm, you know, do, does a 
to would a kid even if they haven't seen this movie would this make sense and then um i actually recently went to go um i was over at a friend's house and they have a, a 13 year old daughter and we were like hey what are you doing over there she was like hanging out in the corner of the living room and she was just watching um like a, a compilation on youtube of like scariest moments from movies and i was like it's amazing to me that i can now like now kids can just look this stuff up so i didn't have to worry as much but um the accessibility thing, I just really tried to make it, ish, if, if I can say it in one sentence, like just keep paring things down and paring things down and really getting to the heart of what everybody on a film crew does, what each, like it's, it's set into four different stages. So the four, first part of the book is development, then pre-production, production, and then post-production. And everything I tried to, tried to keep it short. Uh, I'm a pretty brisk writer anyways. Um, I, one of those writers that I'm always, I'm always panicking that I'm not writing like enough for some reason, maybe it's just a leftover from school and writing essays, but this, with this book, it was actually perfect. So I was like, okay, if I can boil every, all of this down to just the most essential stuff um, and put it into terms that kids can understand. That was another thing is that I had to make sure that I was using word, like making, speaking as simply as I could and also obviously not swearing. <laughs> But just making it so, um, you know, a, a lot of the language around film is because especially like film critics and people who write about film love to like put those noses in the air and make it sound as fancy as possible. But it doesn't have to be. And so a lot of boiling, it's just really a lot of boiling down. This is a book I would have been obsessed with when I was 11, 12 years old, because it told me exactly how, like, listen, I've done 600 episodes of this trying to figure out how people make TV. Like, this book tells me exactly how the movies I loved were made. I want to go back a second and talk a little bit about selling this book. You know, obviously, you, you have two books behind you now. You have a lit agent. But how do you position someone, one, who has never written for young people? Um, and to this book specifically, which like, sure, a lot of this information is available online or elsewhere. Uh, so what, what's the, what's the justification for, no, this book should exist. Yeah. Uh, in the age of the internet, that is a really, really great question. And it's funny because you would think that, uh, you know, my first book was a film book and it did reasonably well. And you would think that it would be a slam dunk to sell this. And it wasn't. Um, and I think that's part of the reason is like, well, why would a kid pick up a book, an old ancient tome when they can go on TikTok? Um, but I remember being a kid. It's so nice to have things laid out for you, you know, and I re and um, so when I pitched it, I really made sure to highlight the fact that one, a book like this doesn't exist yet. There's nothing out there. And two, just so much about pitching is making sure that the other person gets it. You know, you can't when you're pitching things, you can't be like, oh, well, you'll see, you'll get it when you see it. Like that, does, that's like the antithesis of what a pitch is supposed to be. It's all about making everybody who is reading that proposal understand what your book is, who it is for, what it accomplishes. And so it's, it's actually very similar to what I was doing when I was writing the book. It was distilling it down to like, okay, you know, if you can, if you can describe your book in one or two, two sentences, you're probably doing great. If you were sitting there and you're like, well, and like, you know, a giant piece of parchment rolls down and like flies across the floor, like you're probably not doing great. You have to be able to figure out how to distill the heart of your book down 
to a sentence, a paragraph, a page, a really, really short thing. And that's what I did with this. I was like, hey, this is going to be the world's first book about filmmaking aimed at young girls. And it does this, this, and that. It is set up like this, this, and this way. And I think it's going to be successful for this, this, and this reason. Um, one thing that is um, a really interesting misconception that a lot of uh, older people have about the younger generation is that uh, kids and teens are buying more hardcover books than than ever now. Um, you know, and for, and for the same reasons, a lot of people are gravitating towards more um, uh, analog things. You know, these kids are on their laptops at school all day. They are on their phones all day. And a lot of kids like reading actual books. So, or, and, and, you know, just taking the time to, to sit and read something. And when you're trying to teach a kid thing, like, yeah, you can learn a lot of stuff on TikTok and on YouTube, but a lot of people are visual learners and it's really what do you what is an 11 year old going to do take a bunch of notes on a youtube video i mean i'm sure there are but like why make them do that like how great it would be to just have everything written out in a book that they can write in uh, the way that the book the paper that it's printed on is like not glossy paper and in the back there is a page a page of um resources for kids and there's also a um a book tracking or a uh, book tracking. Wow. You could tell that I also host a reading podcast, <laughs> a movie tracking log, which is really cool where girls can write down all the movies they watch and like rate them and, and like think about them. You know, I, I think that writing this generation off as, the gen as, as a generation that can learn everything from videos online is not great. Um, and eventually you know, we found a, a publisher that was interested and, uh, and I, uh, got in touch with my wonderful friend, Jen Vaughn, who from Go. So I was matched up with Jen even before I sold the book. I actually, because uh, I knew I was gonna need help selling the concept of it being illustrated. So I hired her um, before uh, I wrote the proposal to make some preliminary drawings. Uh, the one that she did is the editing room one, because I wanted to show what an edit bay can look like and also like okay well here's the first shot here's the first image of like one editor standing in front of a uh, of a um a scene and then look pictures of her looking at the scene from different angles and then another illustration of like you know the director and the producer and the editor on a couch watching it like i really wanted to show that show that stuff and i hired jen to do it jen has a really great style um that Jen threads this really interesting needle between YA and middle grade. And that's what I wanted. The, the book is technically middle grade, but I wanted it to be appealing to a teenage audience as well. And Jen's art really does that. Like it looks, it is accessible for a 10 year old, but also looks cool enough for a 15 year old, if that makes sense. Uh, so I, I, I teamed up with her and then the publisher actually was interested in hiring her. I was so over the moon and we had such a great collaboration. Um, I was really just had an absolute blast working with her. Um, and that, that really helped sell it as well. So um, it is tough, you know, if you, having to hire and pay money to do a proposal or do a pitch but I knew in this case it was going to help me and it really really did and I'll tell you right now we only had one offer on this book you know there was you would think again after Lady from the Black Lagoon LA Times best-selling book that like people would be knocking down my door we had one publisher who wanted this and it was not a huge advance but I am happy it exists and uh hopefully it'll find it if one girl starts making a movie because of this book, I will consider the whole dang thing worth it. I, I have a feeling it's going to be many more than one.
So, so you come in after, after you get the offer on the book, uh, you're matched up with an editor and all that. Um, what you have your proposal. And so, you know, you know what this book should look like. I'm curious to hear about like what discoveries you made along the way about things you found that you needed in the book that you hadn't thought about for the proposal or things that you had in the proposal. They're like, this is, this doesn't go in this book. This is for another book. Oh my God, Ben, this book got rewritten so many times. Uh, I will tell <laughs> That's you. That's surprising though, because you have this built-in structure of making the movie. So the way that this book started out, um, my, my old agent, who I'm actually not with anymore, really thought that it needed to be a little bit more narrative, which I do think was a good idea at the time, uh, but it just didn't work in practice. So the way that I had written this, I literally wrote almost the entire book like this, where you, it, it was more like a choose your own adventure style novel where you were the main character, but you were meeting all these names, like all the different members of the crew had names and there was like sort of a story. And it was just, it was, it felt so unnecessary. Like when I was pitching the book, it made total sense. Like, oh, cool, we'll make it, we'll make it a story. We'll make it more narrative. This will help people like pull them through the book. And it just bogged the whole process down, especially because there's a lot of crew members that you only meet for one chapter. So it felt so just he like heavy and bogged down to ha like come up with this whole character of a person that you literally meet for a page. And, and it just wasn't working and it wasn't working and it was really frustrating me. And it felt like it was taking away from the educational aspect of the book until finally, after having rewritten the book twice, I emailed my editor and I was like, what if I just rip this whole fucking thing out? Like, what if I just take this part out of the book? And she was like, all right, give it a go. And I started writing it again from scratch and it totally worked that way. Cause I, I, I was like, well, what if I just make the making of a movie exciting? Like I was like, I don't, I'm putting a hat on a hat here. Like making an, especially, um, you know, I, I, it was very, very uh, intentional for me to have the fake movie that you're making in this book be a zombie movie. I wanted to make it a horror movie. I love genre. That's how a lot of people come into into I fell in love with filmmaking through horror and just the idea just the way like making these choices for this movie and going through the process of making a zombie movie is so fun on its own I was like I didn't even need any of this stuff and I, it doesn't it, it, it can be compelling and, and fun without all of that so on the third time was the charm I rewrote it and it totally worked and I'm really really happy with it um Maybe someday I'll write another nonfiction, you know, pick your own path book that will have a narrative aspect to it. But um, it just it also it, it confused the lines between fiction and nonfiction too much. Um, and I, I love being a nonfiction writer. I, I'm so comfortable in that place. So I taking that all out, um, even though it was so much work, I'm really glad uh, we 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 ended up where we did. That's so interesting. And I think it's a great lesson for writers of any kind about like, you, you know, when something doesn't work, there's a part of you that knows. Oh, you absolutely, you know, in your gut. 
And sometimes it's a darling and sometimes it's a character. Sometimes it's a scene. For me, it was the whole goddamn spine of the book that I had to rip out. But, you know, all this, like, I vividly remember writing the first, like, again, starting from the beginning for the third time and rewriting the first part of it. Because the uh, development stage, you meet the producer, the director, the screenwriter, and possibly the concept artist if you'd make that choice. And I was writing those first few chapters and I was like, oh my God, like it just felt, it felt like I, I had been running with ankle weights on for, for like a year and then I took them off and just went, like it, it just felt so good. And And how do you, I mean, it seems like you have a good attitude about rewrites anyway that you don't tend to hold on to stuff you don't tend to get precious about these things no and maybe i'm just like a weird little masochist you know people i have writer friends that always laugh because i don't hate getting my edit letter some people are like they get their edit letter and like they they can't even look at it for a few days and they cry like i actually really love a collaborative process and i love um Maybe I, I think it might be because I I did not go to school for writing. I did not come from like a storied lofty place of writing. For me, writing and writers are like a boots on the ground in the trenches kind of kind of work. And so I'm I'm not the kind of writer that thinks that I'm always right. And I know when things are working and not working and I know them in my gut, but I really welcome other people's opinions, especially, and I, 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 I want to say a word of caution because some people are, you know, they hear that and they're like, they're asking their neighbor, they're asking the guy at the coffee shop, like you, it, I've worked very hard to cultivate a group of people in my life whose opinions I trust very, very, very much. But uh, I'm just not precious about that. And I know some people have a really hard time with that and they feel very vulnerable writing and, you know, every word that they have on the page feels precious and feels like it's, it's something that they made. Um, and it is, but at the same time, a, for me, the draft is not the book. It's part of the process. And um, it also, maybe that's weirdly from my film background because there, um, you know, you, a, a, a film goes through so many different stages you know first it's an idea and then it's a screenplay and then it's a then it's a bunch of raw footage and then it's a film and it isn't really its final product until the very end there's so much you add to it and I think my years of working in film I just got so used to that so and just like fine-tuning and, and not really feeling attached to a thing until it is done 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 uh, and that's, I think it has really, really helped me not be like clutching my heart as my darlings get like slaughtered on the floor. You know, it's just, um, it's fine. I love, I love that part of writing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you really do enjoy the process. What, what are, what's the hard part for you? Uh, I mean, besides the, that what we talked about earlier, the um, not having control over things uh, is tough. Um, uh that part is is really difficult for me um, because I you know, this I, I am a control freak. Weirdly enough, having just heard the answer to your last question, I I am sort of a control freak, and having to take that thing that means so much to you and you work so hard on it and just like watch as a team of other people take it and run with it and do other things with it, it's hard. You know, um, I'm very lucky that. Um, for most of my books, I, I work with a, a really, really great publisher that I really trust. This this is actually my first book for, for middle grade. So, you know, it was hard being with a totally new publisher, a team that I don't know, but so far my publicity team's amazing. Like it's great. Um, and also, you know, as much as I trusted Jen, uh, you know, I've never worked with a co-creator before. Um, and it, like, 
it before I saw the first thing, you know, uh, um, slate, I guess, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, um, of illustrations, I was like, I had like crafted all these um, reference folders, and I had all had this idea of how everything I wanted to look and I and then I was like, Oh, my God, this is it. It's out of my hands. Like, I can't do anything. It's all Jen now. And I was rewarded for my patience. Like she absolutely crushed it and did even better than I had dreamed. Um, but that part um, is tough. You know, in film, it's you can't be like that, because it's, it's so much more collaborative. But with writing novels, and um, I think comics is kind of maybe like an in between between film and uh and novels and nonfiction books because you you know there's so there's such a huge visual aspect to it but um writing books is so much more lonely you're so much more in control and then all of a sudden this thing that I, you know i had been working on this book since before lady from the black lagoon even came out so i had been i this book is coming out may 23rd 2023 which is hard because it's 523 23 <laughs> um and I had been working on it since I've been kicking it around since 2018. So it's five years, uh, five years of books are slow, man. <laughs> uh, so it's very weird to have something that's been in your head and you've been kicking around for so long. Um, all of a sudden you are not, uh, there's nothing more you can do to contribute to its success. And, um, Sometimes uh, publisher, there's some publishers, uh, I love my publishers fine, uh, but like sometimes people want authors to think that they're the ones in control and you've got to do this and you've got to be saying yes to every interview. You've got to be on Twitter every single day, screaming your little heart out. And a, a lot of us do that, but we all know that that's not how, uh, what, what, that doesn't move the needle as much as you think it does. And so much of books is luck. You know, that is another thing that people do not talk about. I am very, very proud of my first book, but I also recognize the fact that I wrote Lady from the Black Lagoon before Me Too Kate's like started and before Shape of Water was like what was happening. And suddenly within six months before that book came out, um, Me Too was in the news every day and Shape of Water won all the Oscars. Uh, so Creatures from the Black, the Black Lagoon was in in people's, was people were talking about it. It was in the public con consciousness again. If I had written that book a year or two before, I think that it probably would have sold a 10th of the copies that it did. And with and I am so proud of that. And I worked my little heart out on it. And I think it's a great book, but so and you can't plan for that. Like you absolutely can't plan for that. So it is very, it's tough when you've had so much fun writing it and you, you know, love working with your editor and you love your team. And then all of a sudden, like, you can't control anything more. You know, you can do, you can do your little tweets and you could do your little TikToks. Um, and that, that part is hard. I mean, you know, you've released so many things and you, you can say yes to all the podcasts and interviews and events that you want, but uh, there's only so much you can do. And that's rough. That's rough. It is. It is. Well, here's here's something we can do. We can tell folks to go pick up Girls Make Movies. Thank you. Um, it's such a lovely book. Like it looks great. It reads great. Man, there's so much coming from you. <laughs> I think, like, like I said, when I was 11, I would have loved this book. And I'm not even a girl. <laughs> it is. I will say, 
anybody can read it. It's definitely it meant, meant a lot to me to like make sure it was for girls. Uh, it has a lot of queer history in there too. So any whatever gender your kid uh, has, or uh, maybe if they're genderless, it doesn't matter. Anyone can read this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's I, trying to get those girls to make some movies. That's all I want them to do. <laughs> um, so so folks listening, uh, give it to the um, you know ten eleven through. 18 year old uh, movie nerd in your life, they will really learn a lot from it and also enjoy reading it and also tell your friends uh, to pick up uh, Girls Make Movies. Um, Mallory, do you, one thing I wanted to ask you about is as part of this stuff that is so out of your control as a writer, do you have to think about the arc of your career in, you know, when you're planning your next books? Is this something you have to take into consideration? I wish that it wasn't, but you do. Um, I'm, I'm sure you know, you you have dabbled in so many things um, and you, I, everyone- Master can't. of none. Oh, stop. <laughs> uh, you know, n- no one likes using the word brand, but in that that's the other side of being a writer. And that's why it's such a strange job is because it is so creative and so lonely. And then you have to flip a switch and- uh, be in a have a business mindset I always tell people that there are, are when you start writing you are actually signing up for two jobs because being a writer and being an author are two different things um, and some people are good at one and not the other some people are good at both um, and you really have to think about that stuff um, and you have the, the thing that's really tough is you have to balance what you know that you can sell and again this is for if you want to do it as a career I am a full-time writer so I have to think about this stuff you have to balance what you think will sell based off the stuff that you've already done or the way that you can pitch it mixed with something that you really want to do which is why it's very you can't write for a market you can't write for I mean you can you can try uh but you have to you have to want to do it and you have to be passionate about it enough to make it good so you really have to walk a line between so when I when I'm thinking about my next project it's always, I usually, like I just sold a book last year. I'm working on it now. It's hopefully going to be done within the next month for uh, it's an, another adult film history for my first publisher, um, Hanover Square Press. And when I pitched that, I actually had another book that I wanted to write really badly, um, very, very badly. <laughs> but, and my editor was very into it, but he brought it to um, the sales seat or the um, the board, which sounds so scary. Like I just only imagine a bunch of people in like row, like weird ceremonial robes, but it's a, a, an acquisitions board. And there's one of these at a comic shop, uh, um, uh, comics publisher there are these at film production companies you know there's always this like shadowy group of people who is who are in charge of what money they spend on things and um the they were not the board was not interested in this book that I wanted because it was very far outside of the other the other things that I've done and it was still women's history but it just wasn't in the same Vain is that and I was like I get it I get it I get it so I had given I this done this full proposal for this one book that I really wanted to do and then given them three other ideas for things and one of them was another film history that I thought was a safe bet because now I've written two film books um and that's the one that they ended up going for because it was a safe bet and um but I made sure that it was a story that I really, really wanted to tell. And I'm super excited about it. It's so fun. It's so exciting. I can't tell you what it's about because my editor will rappel down from the seat. It'll crawl out of the vents of my house and kill me because we're not announcing the who it's about yet. 
Um, but you definitely, if you want to be a writer as a full-time career, you really have to think about the projects that you're doing, whether they um, sell to sell, you know, look, make sense together. It's very hard um, to, to, you know, to jump, jump genres, jump mediums. I mean, even with all the stuff that you've done, Ben, I know a Ben Blacker project when I see it. <laughs> that makes sense. It does make sense. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, you, you live in this sort of like speculative space, like that's, that's very fun and a little cheeky, but also like really cool and maybe a little spooky like that. Like I, 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 it's something that I recognize and that getting that speaking for myself comes from picking stories that you're excited about and projects that mean something to you because we all have our own personal taste and you have to figure out how to polish and shape that taste just a little bit to make it into your brand that you can and if you're a self-published person again like go fucking nuts like I can't speak to that but if you are having to pitch yourself and create proposals, you have to figure out a way to make it all, if not match, at least look good in the same room together, if that makes sense. <laughs> that absolutely makes sense. And that's what it is, right? It's it's representing yourself through these various things, uh, which means they all have to be, they all have to fit together. They have to look good together. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, and also I like the way you described my work. Will you be my agent? Sure. I'm great. I, I sign me up. I'm, I'm re I am very good at pitching. I will say that it's something I work really, I, I, I taught a class on pitching. So I have an online pitching course. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a skill, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult. And I'm, I'm ready to get in the Ben Blacker business. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's wrap up by asking, have you read anything great lately? I first met you, Mallory, uh, through your podcast, the Reading Glasses podcast, uh, which I still love. Um, so I, I feel like I know what you've been reading lately. But if you want to recommend anything to the folks listening to this, uh, what have you read? And also what movies have you watched that you really love lately? Oh my gosh. Okay. Two things that I'm excited about. Um, one is I, I will recommend my favorite book of short stories that came out this year. Uh, it is White Cat, Black Dog by Kelly Link, who is one of my favorite authors. And she, uh, I think it came out in March, came out with her new short story collection. And the most succinct way I can describe Kelly Link is that she is the heir to the throne of Ray Bradbury. She is one of the one of the few writers that can blend all the genres. Uh, you know, when you're getting a Kelly Link story, it's going to be this beautiful amalgamation of sci-fi and fantasy and horror, maybe a little Western, maybe a little dystopian. Like it's going to, and, and uh, she's just so brilliant. And her, this short story collection is um, a, it's a bunch of retellings. So uh, it's all retellings of fairy tales, but in ways that are so strange, but also so compelling. Um, oh my God, she's just, uh, she's so good. And then um, a movie that I watched very recently that I fell in love with that I somehow missed. It came out in 2016 and I think I maybe missed it because 2016, you know, there's a lot going on that year. Um, but it is, um, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, directed by Megan Blair with uh, Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood, who are obviously in the news right now because they're both in the new season of Yellow Jackets. But this film blew my face off. I had never seen it and I didn't even know what it was about. My boyfriend, Jeremy Lambert, who's also a writer, was like, we should watch this. And I was like, cool, I don't have no idea what it's about. And it's like, 
it's kind of like a modern day blue velvet. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Okay, I can see that. <laughs> but it's not quite that weird. <laughs> I don't know. It's a pretty weird movie. It is, but it's like if David Lynch did an episode of Justified is what it feels like to me. I feel like it's blue velvet because it's one person who is, a, it's like the main character who is very essentially good getting very unintentionally wrapped up in this criminal underbelly that's very ridiculous and over the top uh and it's just trying to be a good person it's about this woman who is she's just she's in lives by herself she's single she has a crappy job working as a nursing assistant and she's just so frustrated that the world is full of assholes and someone breaks into her house and she gets so frustrated and she um and the cops won't help her they're very dismissive of her and she ends up on this like journey to fig to find the people who stole both her laptop and her grandmother's silver and she teams up with elijah wood who plays this like scummy rat-tailed weirdo guy and uh but he but oh my god i was dying but and they end up like on this wacky adventure and it's so heartwarming and so lovely and um my my the biggest thing in my film watching wheelhouse is like a combination of very wholesome and very weird and that movie is like boom right in the center of it so i just love it and it's uh definitely a gem it's on netflix i think it, it we watched it streaming so uh definitely recommend people watch it oh so good yeah it's a good recommendation it doesn't get talked about very much and melanie is i mean melanie is always incredible but in that movie she gives a particularly specific and and great performance Oh yeah, and it's oh, if you love her and Yellow Jackets, and you love like uh, world weary but st still trying to be good, Melanie Linsky, this is gonna make you really happy. It's just she's so funny and she's so good. These are two great recommendations, Mallory. Thank you so much. Uh, come back and talk soon. Yes, anytime you want me to come back on talk about pitching, let me know.